Good morning, everyone. In the New Testament, there is a word that is translated into English, saints. And if you study that word, it's used mostly by the Apostle Paul. It means those who are set apart, set apart for the purpose of Christ. So in the theology of Christianity, the world and society and culture often has its own agenda. And Christ Jesus has his agenda. And those who are set apart for the purpose of Christ are called saints. So when Paul used the term saints in the Bible, he used it the most, he would refer to the entire church, everyone there as saints, saints of God, the people who are set apart for the purpose of Jesus Christ. And we use that uh, definition here in our congregation. So uh, a couple of times a year, we'll stop and we will study the life of a Christian saint, someone set apart for Christ. Um, and uh, here's why we do that. For one, it shows us that God worked in the lives of people beyond the pages of the Bible. I think it's important for us to see that, that miracles and mission and the Holy Spirit's power continue after uh, Acts chapter 28. Also, it lets us see God working with everyday people. Now, the truth is, is that Peter was a fisherman and Paul was a rabbi and David was a shepherd. They were everyday people. However, when you grow up studying them in Sunday school and seeing the History Channel do, you know, documentaries about the mysteries of the Bible, these people take on kind of a superhuman feel, and it's hard for us to remember they're everyday people. So to study people who uh, God worked with and through after the pages of Scripture helps bring us back to the truth that God is just working through people like us in the everyday life. Uh, also, it gives us then historical mentors Mentors are people we can learn with, we, we, from. We can look at their life and draw lessons for our life. And so when we study these folks, even though we've not met them, some of them passed away before we were born, uh, it gives us historical mentors a life to learn from. So this morning, we're going to turn our eyes and ears to the life of Eric Little. Eric Little is best known to us in America because the 1984 best picture, Chariots of Fire, was about a part of his life. But as we're going to see by the time this message is over, that movie just barely scratches the surface of who Eric Little was. Most of what I'm presenting uh, comes from this book, Eric Little, Pure Gold, by David McCasland. So uh, if you want to check that out to go deeper, that is where most of this comes from. Eric was the son of a Scottish missionary, so he was actually born while they were out of the country. He was born in Tingjing, China, in January 16th, 1902. At the age of eight years old, his family returned to the United Kingdom, and they enrolled him in a British boarding school for missionary children. Now, from the time Eric was eight years old until his mid-twenties, he only saw his parents a total of six months. That was uh, typical for the children of missionaries at that time in the world. So he grew up in a British boarding school. He and his brother, every other kid in the school, was also the son or daughter of, or probably son in British system. Daughters be a different building, I think. Uh, anyways, children of missionaries. So that was how they did it. Now, to say Eric and his brother were athletic would be a gross, gross understatement. By university, he was a star rugby player and a star track athlete. For running events, I got to see a roster of the medals for one of the running events. It would not be uncommon for he and his older brother to take first or second 
in, in all of the running events would be one of the littles in first and second, and they would switch on who could beat who. So not surprisingly, he earned a spot on the 1924 United Kingdom Olympics team. He was favored to win the 100 meters gold, which would be the first time the United Kingdom had ever won gold in 100 meters. They called him the Flying Scotsman. There's just one problem. The race was scheduled in Paris for a Sunday afternoon. And Eric Little, the son of a missionary, would not run on Sundays. At the age of 22, he had a strong conviction, conviction that Sunday was the Lord's day and not for playing games. Now, I'll be completely honest. If Eric Little were in this congregation and said, Pastor, they want me to run on Sunday, I would say, it's the Olympics, you know, go, go run on Sunday. I, we'll get along fine. Nothing will happen here you probably haven't seen before and won't see again. I would probably say run, but uh, I know from studying his life, he would not have listened anyway. The British government tried to get him to run in the Olympics by appealing to patriotism. They said he had to do this for the country. Eric replied that God comes before country. They tried to convince him that the race was in the afternoon after religious services were over so he could go to church and they could run after the Sabbath had ended. Eric replied that his Sabbath lasts all day. So when race day came, Eric was not running the 100 meters. He was preaching a sermon in a Presbyterian church in Paris. However, the United Kingdom did have another runner named Abrams, who was also very fast and won the gold anyway, so they weren't really out anything. As Eric left church that day, someone pressed a note into his hand, which he opened later and read. It said, in the old book it says, he that honors me, I will honor. Now, Eric had switched to running the 400 meters because, you know, why not? He wasn't trained for it, but let's do it anyway. It's just the Olympics. It was a race he was not considered equipped to run. It was four times longer than the event he trained for. It requires a totally different strategy. When it came time to draw which lane you run in, uh, he drew the outside lane, which runners consider the worst lane to draw because they're staggered like this. You feel like you're in first place when you aren't necessarily, and you can't pace yourself with what the runners are doing because if you see them, then you're in big trouble. So that's yeah, the lane he drew. To make matters worse, when they sh did the starter pistol, he took off at a blistering pace. 100-meter runner, right? He runs the first half way, way, way too fast. Too much of a lead. Everyone was sure that he would drop back. But he didn't. He lengthened his lead. By the time he broke the finishing tape, he was five meters ahead of the second place runner, and he set a new world record, 47 and three quarters seconds. Still, in all of the speaking, public speaking he did afterward, Eric never insinuated that his speed was supernaturally given by God as a reward for his conviction of not running on a Sunday. He, he did not go there. Now, that story is where what most Americans know and certainly everything that I knew about uh, Eric ends. But truthfully, uh, that event was probably just the beginning of his Christian life. So we're going to go from there. Eric never tried out for another Olympics. In 1925, at the age of 23, he got on a train crossed Siberia, and went to live in North China. 
And this is the first of several parallels between the life of Eric Little and the life of our congregation that we're going to stumble on this morning. So the first parallel is a passion for China and a connection to that place and what God wants to do there. I know many of you feel that passion very strongly, and almost all of you support it in prayers and in financial giving. Eric went to China to teach science. He was a, that was his major at university and to organize sports for children living in missionary school in China. That, during that time, he was going to be evaluated to see if he could be a lifelong missionary. I think that's another parallel. I think uh, this church is a community that values athletic competition. A couple that does our marriage and family uh, classes and retreats, actually they're leading a, a marriage class right now, um, told me I was having dinner with him a couple weeks ago. They said, Lakeland is a very competitive congregation. I said, you mean with other churches? I said, no, no, but just like if you give them like a game for an icebreaker for fun, they're all playing to win. <laughs> well, yes, we are. <laughs> Another parallel, Eric was a science teacher. Um, that's a parallel with us, is, is a love of science. Our culture is becoming increasingly technological and scientific at the same time that the church in America seems to be becoming increasingly hostile toward the, the dis discipline of science and scientists. And here at Lakeland, we're just not like that. I used to be a science teacher. I think Eric Little would stand with us and say that it's silly to believe you cannot follow God and passionately study science. Science is, after all, the study of the universe that God has made. So we try to hold the belief of the first scientists who first started doing scientists, or first started doing science, that to study nature and to study natural laws is to study the mind of God, to appreciate the genius of the creator by examining the things he has created. Eric was evaluated favorably and offered to, uh, was offered the chance to stay in China permanently as a missionary, and he did. He stayed on at the school. He fell in love with Florence McKenzie, who they just called Flo. He was, uh, she was a Canadian girl who was also living in China, child of a missionary. They would eventually have three children together. Now, their first, this is, this is really going to go good at Lakeland. Their first daughter was going to be born near Christmas, and so Flo thought it would be nice if they named the first daughter Carol, like Christmas Carol. Eric wanted to name the daughter, daughter Heather after the Heather that grows on the hills of Scotland. So neither of them would budge on the name. So Eric said, well, why don't we just write both names on a can, uh, both names on paper, put them in a can, and we'll draw it out. So they put the names in the can, they drew it out, and they drew Heather. Two weeks later, Eric admitted that he had written Heather on both pieces of paper. <laughs> Arnry, but his wife was amused enough to let it stand. I think Arnryness is a mark of Lakeland, and I think this guy would fit in really well here with a sense of humor like that. If Eric had a fault, it was not being able to say no. He was always busy helping around the school, helping other missionaries, helping the Chinese locals, helping, helping, helping. Yet, Eric wrote in his journal something that you hear said in this sanctuary almost every week. Here's what he wrote. Work is prayer, and prayer is work. That is quite true. But one needs times of quiet just to be alone with God. However busy one is about his work, it cannot make up for the quiet times. 
How often have you heard that? Eric also had particular ideas about how people who didn't know very much about God should be asked to come and follow Christ. Even in England, where Christian culture was well embedded at that time in what they did, when he would speak to a packed YMCA gathering, he did not hold an altar call at the end of his message. Rather, after sharing Christ, he would dismiss everyone and invite those who wanted to learn more about what it meant to start a life with Jesus to stay after. And then he would begin taking them through discipleship and learning about how to follow Christ right there in person. In China, he led a Bible study that included 43 Chinese teenagers. That's a huge youth group when you're doing it across languages. However, there was a culture at that time in China where uh, children would come to missions and accept Christ because then they could get food regularly or shelter in the mission regularly. They called them rice Christians. They just said they followed Jesus so they could get rice. Um, Eric was aware of this phenomenon, and so he took the strategy that it was better just to give all the kids who showed up what they needed in terms of food, in terms of shelter, meet all their needs, no matter what they had decided or not decided about Jesus. He felt they should be taught slowly and carefully who Jesus was, because in his culture, they didn't even know anything about him. He recommended waiting two or three years before asking a Chinese person to accept Christ as their Savior, to make sure they truly understood who God was, who Jesus is, and what his call is. This reminds me a lot of how much emphasis we place in our congregation on not just getting people to participate in a moment of conversion, but striving to form our conversions, even my own conversion, into a life of authentically following Jesus and hearing from God for the rest of our life, forever after. Eric, while in China, continued to refuse to organize sporting events on Sunday. In fact, he was traveling in England, uh, and on the behalf of the church, since he was a sports figure, he wrote this open letter to all youth organizations in Scotland. And here's what he wrote. He said, the meeting, that's what they call the church, is of the opinion that the increasing use of the Lord's Day for games and recreations, however harmless in themselves, is detrimental to the higher interests of the youth of the country, as well as adding to the amount of unnecessary labor of other people. And so the church calls on all young people's organizations to give full consideration to this aspect of the question. Eric's not saying that sports are detrimental to young people. They're not. And he was an Olympic medalist. But he is saying that young people need Jesus Christ and all people need a day of rest. And organizing all these games on Sundays takes kids away from church and gives adults a lot of hard work to be doing on their day of rest and reflection. Eric was asking youth sports teams to be friendly toward the needs of real kids in society. It's a message I wish he could deliver to our culture today. Eric could also be countercultural in more serious ways. In order to run a, a school in China, you had to obey reams and reams of constantly changing Chinese regulations. Because this was the 1930s, there was a spirit of nationalism and militarism in China, and really almost everywhere in the world at that time. At that time, every country felt it was their job to convince their citizens that they were uh, morally, if not genetically, superior to every other nation in every way, and to prepare for war if that superiority were to be challenged. 
So therefore, if you wanted to be in China and run a school that had Chinese kids going to it, you had to, they had to give up their high school students for two months at the end of every semester to go for military training. This shortened the high school school year down to five months of learning and four months of boot camp. And the missionaries themselves had to conduct their own military drills for the junior high age kids. Now, to, to really get this in context, to understand why Eric responds as he does, you have to remember that Eric Little was a teenager during World War I. World War I was when one quarter of Europe was slaughtered. Most of them men from a single generation. Uh, C.S. Lewis, another of our favorite Christians to study, he went to war with ten friends, and he was the only one who came home. So for Eric Little, training seventh graders to go to war was a horrible thing to have to do. So here's how Eric dealt with this. He did what was required to keep the school open. But he also led retreats for kids in which he mixed Anglo kids and Chinese kids into the same retreat and took them out to hike and to camp and to pray and to study the Bible together. The Chinese made them all live in a foreign city and so there was all sorts of nationalities. Eric would also take Anglo kids and Russian kids out on hiking and prayer retreats. They'd start out fighting, and by the end, they would be singing hymns together and fishing and all of that. His subversion of the Chinese intention was obvious. They wanted them to grow to hate each other and to be ready to go to war, even at age 12, but Jesus tells us to love each other and to make ready for the kingdom of God. And so that's what Eric did in his spare time. And then in 1933, Japan invaded China. Their preparations did not help them. The people of China were made to suffer horribly under Japanese occupation. The school where Eric taught was uh, in northern China, and so it was captured at first, the Japanese tried to step very lightly around the foreigners living in China. They especially did not want to upset the Europeans or the Americans yet. But they knew the missionaries especially would be on the side of the Chinese people because that's what missionaries do. They take the side of the people they minister to. So the Japanese would carefully control the movements of Chinese missionaries. During all this horror, Eric had a series of encounters and revelations with God. One time, he was trying to visit his wife and kids who were trapped in South China. While he was traveling, he was caught by a, German, uh, no, caught by a Japanese soldier who searched him and found his Bible. The soldier then asked him in, in English, Are you a Christian? When Eric nodded, the Japanese soldier shook his hand and let him pass. Another time, Eric was trying to get on a train to go to England to raise money for the mission and to make uh, people in England aware of, of what was happening in China. When he got to the train station, he found the Japanese were barring all European travelers from leaving the country. Suddenly, a Jewish man appeared from the crowd at the train station, grabbed Eric's passport, and held it up and said, Deutsch, Deutsch, which is German for German, German, like this guy's a German. The Japanese can't read his passport to tell that he's Scottish. So, Japanese soldiers escort Eric through the crowd and put him on the train to go home. The Jewish man shakes his hand and disappears back into the crowd. He once held a baptism service while shells fell on the city 
where the baptism was being held and truckloads of invading soldiers were rolling down the street. He once visited his in-laws in Canada and the ship they were traveling on was hit by a torpedo. They heard a loud clang, but the warhead did not explode. When the visit was over, Eric and his family returned to China. Amid all this danger and horror, he managed to write these words in his journal. Happiness is to have enough for the day's needs with always some despair for those who have not. It is to possess the love of friends and to have the knowledge that all is well with them. It's to live in peace with all men. Happiness is to have the strength to face with courage all that the day may bring. It is to cherish the gift of laughter and be quick to note all that is lovely and of good report. Happiness is to find our joy in the common things of life. For so will youth abide in our hearts till the end of our days. Thank God for the gift of happiness. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the attitude of the Japanese changed. Things became more dangerous for Eric and his family, and his wife was six months pregnant, so he had his wife and two children sent back to Canada. He booked them passage on a Japanese cargo ship. He felt this was the only ship that would be safe from Japanese attack on the journey back. They arrived safely. But shortly after that, the missionary school was closed by the Japanese. All contact between Chinese citizens and European citizens was forbidden. Eric was now trapped in China, a missionary without a mission. The missionaries tried to make a life for themselves, now living in that foreign city under house arrest. The English and Americans started pooling their money together and made for themselves inside the foreign city their own schools, their own hobby groups, and even a stage theater. Eric wrote a prayer book and devotional book during that time, 365 days of daily prayers and scripture readings. He called his book Discipleship. He was ready to take it out and minister to anyone as soon as he could have someone to minister to. Again, I think Eric would make a great Lakelander. In his book, he dedicated the entire month of September to the concept of surrender, which is a banner hanging in our sanctuary. He preached in the compound church, and uh, one of the messages he preached, he preached what he called the four absolutes. I'll share these with you, because these have have been really hard on me this summer, and I want to share the hardness. He said, live with absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. He said, without these, what else are you going to do? Live with relative honesty? Socially acceptable level of purity, occasional unselfishness, and a fair amount of love. I spent the spring and the summer and going into the fall here trying to integrate these absolutes into my own life. I have found it very difficult, but very powerful on the days when it went well. Since America was also running concentration camps at that time filled with Japanese people, the Americans and the Japanese got interested in doing prisoner exchanges so they could lower the load of prisoners that they were having to take care of. Eric and 300 others were part of such a trade. He was placed on a train and taken to Shanghai where he would be shipped over to America while 300 Japanese internees would be shipped back to Japan. However, 
by the time he reached Shanghai, 300 wealthy Westerners living in Shanghai had already bribed their way onto the ship. The ship was already full and left port two days before those who were supposed to be on the exchange even arrived. Eric was put back on a train and shipped back to the foreign city to live under house arrest. And then came 1940. Eric and everyone living in the foreign city was moved into a walled compound surrounded by barbed wire. They were allowed to take only three belongings plus a bed, and the beds never arrived. They boarded a train and they entered the walled compound under a gate with a very ironic sign. The sign read, Courtyard of the Happy Way. 800 Westerners were crammed into, a one, into one city block. The water pipes in that city block had been removed a long time ago by marauders. By the time they got there, every bathroom in the entire block was knee-deep in human waste. The Japanese would dump a truckload of leeks and potatoes in front of the compound every morning. All other renovations, preparations, medical care, Everything inside the compound had to be handled and paid for by the prisoners themselves. So those prisoners formed a council of nine. Department of Education, Food, Finance, Engineering, Quarters, General Affairs, Medical, Employment, and Discipline. And they ran that compound like a small city. Within weeks, they had the hospitals refurbished and were performing minor surgeries. However, only the Catholic priests and nuns living in the compound would agree to put on the boots and take the shovels and make all the bathrooms on the block usable again. Eric's job was to teach school. He also led worship and, of course, organized sports for the children who lived in the compound, but not on Sunday. Living in this compound altogether was a mix of Catholic priests and nuns, Protestant missionaries from a variety of Christian denominations, wealthy businessmen, Western organized crime figures, and opium addicts. Here's how the compound is described. Every able-bodied person in camp, including women and older teens, was assigned a job and expected to work at least three hours a day. Businessmen and their wives, who had previously been waited on by a cadre of Chinese servants, found themselves pumping water and peeling vegetables. Captains of industry awoke before daylight to stoke boiler fires alongside opium addicts and smugglers. Bankers become bakers. Missionaries became bricklayers. Society ladies, secretaries, and prostitutes stirred cauldrons of porridge side by side in the kitchen. They had the best sense of humor about all this that they could. They took down the street signs and renamed the streets Sunset Boulevard and Park Avenue. Each night as you entered the uh, feeding area, they had signs up that said, tonight we're having filet mignon or lobster, when in truth all they ever had was what they called SOS, same old stew. They played baseball tournaments, which drew hundreds of spectators. The team of the Catholic priests could never be beaten until the Vatican arranged for the priests and nuns to leave the compound and go live in a Catholic monastery in Peking. When the priests and nuns left, the prisoners, even the non-Christian ones, wept in the streets because the hardest working and most selfless members of the community were leaving. 
A few weeks later, 300 Americans were released, but they were instantly replaced by 300 children, ages 8 to 18, most of whom came to the compound as orphans without any parents. Eric took all the adolescents and teenagers under his wing. He wrote a 100-page chemistry textbook from memory in order to be able to teach them chemistry in school. He was so popular with his kids, his two roommates had to hang a sign on the door indicating whether Eric was in the room or out. Otherwise, the children would knock on the door incessantly day and night. Every day, news on the radio came of Japan's glorious victories in the Pacific. However, astute listeners noticed that each of these glorious victories was taking place closer and closer to Japan. Why would a victorious army be retreating back home after every battle? The prisoner exchanges ended. Eric, ever trying to spread the freedom and the joy of Christ, taught one of his Christian brothers who was from a denomination that did not allow card playing how to play cards, promising that it would not lead to gambling. He taught some of his other Protestant brothers how to find the power of the Holy Spirit in written prayers and prayer books. In a time when if a Baptist married a Methodist, that was considered a mixed marriage, Eric helped one of his uh, missionary brothers get over his scruples and ask a girl out, even though she was from a different denomination. If that's not Lakeland, I, I don't know what is. I like this guy. Even so, camp spirits sank. People began to argue and steal and morally degenerate. Eric did the best he could to represent the reign of Christ in this place. He still would not organize sporting events on Sunday. When all the non-Christian teenagers living in the compound complained about that, he agreed to let them use the camp sporting equipment to organize their own games on Sundays. When fights broke out because there were no adults supervising the games, Eric got his whistle and took the field the next week as a referee. On Sunday. Jesus said you could do good on the Sabbath. And so Eric did that. Word got around that the teenagers were having sex parties in abandoned basements or in apartments of adults who approved of that sort of thing. So Eric organized chess clubs, square dancing, model boat building, anything, anything to give them something to do besides that. And on Sunday morning, Eric preached love for enemies, even love for their own prison camp guards. Eric said in one message, I know it's hard, but I tried praying for them, and my heart did change. I encourage you, just try praying for the guards this week. And then Eric began to change. He had headaches, his walk became slow and unsteady, he grew depressed about not seeing his family, especially his three-year-old daughter whom he had never laid eyes on. He had a stroke. The doctors suspected a tumor, but they had no equipment to diagnose such a thing. He was lying in a hospital bed and teaching a young woman about surrender. He said these words, God will only come to us step by step. He reveals more to us as we obey what we already know. What great words. God comes to us step by step. He'll reveal more to us as we obey what we already know. 
In the middle of the lesson, he suffered a seizure, fell into a coma, and died later that night. They did determine it was a brain tumor at the age of 43. I saw it on YouTube. There is still a plaque in Tingjing, China, written in Chinese, praising Eric for his wisdom and his service to the Chinese people. They consider him their first Olympic gold medalist because he was born in China. At a memorial service held in Scotland, someone said, Eric put his whole career as a runner in the balance and deemed it as small as dust compared to remaining true to his principles. In the Moscow Games, 1980, Alan Wells became the second runner from the United Kingdom ever to win gold in the 100 meters. They asked him, would you like to dedicate your medal to Abrams, the other runner who had run in Eric's place, back in 1924? And Alan responded, no disrespect to anyone else, but I would prefer to dedicate this to Eric Little. But my favorite comment about Eric Little was offered by a prostitute who attended his funeral in China. She said, Eric once put up a shelf in my home. He was the only man who ever helped me without asking for a favor in return. And just before the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, another revelation comes to light. The Chinese government declassifies that Winston Churchill himself had arranged for a secret prisoner exchange which included Eric Little. However, once all the arrangements had been made, Eric gave up his spot to a pregnant woman. In the Episcopal Church today, February 22nd, is a feast day in honor of Eric's honor. So I hope that the Lord has taken at least one picture or one episode from this story today in order to send you out with new courage, a new appreciation, a new commitment to Jesus Christ. So let's close with one of Eric's own writings on the subject, a subject I think we can agree now he knew a lot about, obedience. This is Eric Little in his own words. Obedience to God's will is the secret of spiritual knowledge and insight. It's not willingness to know, but willingness to do, to obey God's will that brings certainty. Take obedience with you into your prayer hour, for you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Eric Little. That's a lot to absorb. So let's close this portion of the service with just a moment of silence. Perhaps something welled up within you and you need some time to sort it out. Sort it out here in this time of silence with the Lord. Perhaps the Spirit is calling you to something, but you need a few moments in silence to sort out what might that be. So we'll have just a few moments of silence to just reflect on what we've heard and what God may want you to go out and obey Him in today.
Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.